back to Rising. We have another great show prepared for you today, and I think we're going to get right into it. Yeah, well, Robbie, we have a new Speaker of the House. Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana was elected Speaker by a margin of 220 to 209 during a four vote yesterday afternoon, with all present Republicans and eight Democrats voting yes. Johnson, a four-term congressman who's represented Louisiana's 4th District since 2017, is the least experienced legislator to take the Speaker's helm in over 140 years. A staunch social conservative, Johnson has a lengthy track record of fighting against federal protections for gay marriage and abortion. Johnson is also a vocal supporter of former President Donald Trump and joined in Trump's false assertions the 2020 election was stolen. In fact, the new Speaker voted yes to sustain House Republicans' objection to the electoral count on January 6, 2021. In a statement, a spokesperson for President Biden's 2024 re-election campaign said Johnson's election to the speakership, quote, cements the extreme MAGA takeover of the House Republican Conference. Now, in his first address from the speaker pulpit, Johnson had this message for Congress. Thank you all. Uh, first, uh, a few words of gratitude. I want to thank uh, Leader Jeffries. I do look forward to working with you on behalf of the American people. I know we see things from very different points of view, but I know that in your heart you love and care about this country and you want to do what's right. And so we're going to find common ground there, all right? Now, when it comes to his first objective as Speaker, Johnson made clear where his priorities lie. Uh, our, our nation's greatest ally in the Middle East is under attack. The first bill that I'm going to bring to this floor in just a little while will be in support of our dear friend Israel, and we're overdue in getting that done. We're going to show not only Israel, but the entire world that the barbarism of Hamas that we have all seen play out on our television screens is wretched and wrong, and we are going to stand for the good in that conflict. And we're going to talk more about that vote in a minute, but new polls show Republicans across the country could be less than thrilled with Johnson's ascent to the speakership. An economist YouGov poll taken last Saturday through Tuesday found that Johnson received only 1 percent of support from Republicans and independents who lean Republican. Representative Jim Jordan, who failed on the speaker's ballot three times last week, clinched the most support in that poll with 23 percent of voters. So this is a very unknown, in fact, a uniquely unknown person to have been catapulted to this uh, position. Um, I, I think I mean, I, I, they, they've been asking, like, um, just kind of random Republicans in the center, like Susan Collins, like, what, you know, what do you think of this guy? And she's like, I have to Google him. I don't know who he is. <laughs> so, uh, so he's been thrust into the leadership position. Um, what we're learning is that he is a social conservative, social conservative. Um, that is, he's very, um, he's very religious. Um, he's very loyal to Donald Trump. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about his um, his his views there. Um, he was very active in in um, condemning the federal government's overreach on social media. That's an issue a lot of uh, that I care about. A lot of viewers care about. He's been vocal on that. Um, he's also been very skeptical of continued funding to Ukraine. Of course, on the Israel front, he was very keen to affirm. Um, 
the U.S. government support. Right. So um, it seems like a big win for the establishment. His first point of order is to uh, pursue the military funding that uh, both wings of the corporate parties are very invested in. He also, um, to be more specific about the social conservatism, and we ran through some of the things that he opposes, uh, gay, more, uh, gay marriage, but also abortion, it, which is considered to be the issue that is going to be, if anything, the Hail Mary for Democrats going into 2024. Every time abortion has been on the ballot across the country, even in red parts of the country, it has it, it, efforts to limit access to abortion have failed resoundingly. And it will be interesting to see if this impedes uh, conservatives from making the argument that they aren't as uh, zealous on the issue of restricting uh, reproductive rights to American women, as the Democrats very much want to paint them as being, because it's very much the political advantage of Democrats to do so. Another issue that Democrats have at times tried to use to their advantage, although they are less able to do so because they themselves have a bit of a mixed record on it, depending on the Democrat you're talking about. But he has also been very critical of um, Social Security, calling cutting Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid his number one priority. So in a country that there's a lot of America first talk going around where people are experiencing a lot of economic hardship, there's been a lot of complaints about um, Joe Biden's economy, are Americans who significantly rely on those three popular programs, Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security, going to look kindly at a Republican Party that would pick as its leader someone who has called cutting those programs a number one priority. Right. I mean, it is it, that is a priority for conservatives. Um, there's a, conservatives have complained for years and years and years about um, the unsustainable, how much money we spend on those programs, and they're going to become insolvent at a certain point. And it's been a major conservative policy goal to um, to rein in spend to rein in federal spending, and that's one of the the biggest categories of spending we do. Yeah, I would it, like to see them rein in that spending. Of course, I would also like to see them rein in uh, military spending, which is always the kind of double standard on yeah. what Republicans want to do. But just to be clear, I agree that it's been a major Republican goal, just like growing the military budget has been a major Republican and Democratic goal. But the the preferences of the American public are not in line with the priorities of the American establishment. And most Americans are not only reliant on those programs, but are very supportive of those programs and rate them more highly compared to almost any other um, government program. So historically, that's why Republicans have usually been pretty cagey about their efforts to cut Social Security. And I've had to cage it in the terms of, well, it's going to go, um, it's, it's going to go insolvent, so we have to do something about it, and that means cuts, while still ignoring solutions to that problem that are offered by progressives like Bernie Sanders to simply raise the cap on who pays into Social Security. So. Many people know this, but many people don't. Someone making $160,000 a year is paying the same some amount into the Social Security program as someone who's earning millions and millions of dollars because there's a cap on how, what percent of your income can be going to pay to that program. So poor people are paying disproportionately more of their income into it, and lifting the cap would increase solvency by a couple of decades, if I recall correctly. Um, so that's going to be a battle, I think, if Democrats are smart, that they try to play out here in addition to focusing on whether or not the Republican Party is too conservative, more conservative than the American public, on even issues like some of the religious language um, that Johnson is now surface as using repeatedly to describe his um, personal 
political philosophy, separation of church and state was trending on Twitter last night or yesterday afternoon after this news came down because people did find that kind of Bush era language, I think, a little bit different than what we're used to these days, especially in the Trump era where religiosity, I think because of Trump's personal relationship with God, um, hasn't been as Well, that's true, but social conservatives have been among the most loyal backers of Donald Trump within the Republican Party. Obviously, a lot of the, um, a lot of neoconservatives are the faction, you know, if you go back to the kind of Reagan through Bush era conservative move in the Republican Party, you have <clears throat> neoconservatives who care mostly about an interventionist foreign policy. You have social conservatives um, who want, right, bans on gay marriage and abortion and stem cell research and, you know, the mm -hmm. things that were big then. And then you have libertarians who mostly wanted um, more um, economic conservative voters, people who want lower taxes, less spending, et cetera. Um, the exist Trump broke apart that kind of alliance that had existed for decades with neoconservatives really turning on Trump because he was the most vocally against what they were saying. Um, social conservatives remaining incredibly loyal, almost without exception, to Trump. And then the kind of economic libertarian people like myself getting split and confused and not sure whether to get on board the Trump train or not because liking some of the things he would say and do and very much disliking others. So, um, you know, we'll have to see what kind of leader this new um, speaker is and, you know, whether the agenda is broadly popular with the American people. I, conservatives, Republicans have gotten themselves into a position where the more moderate or more establishment um, platforms being offered by people like Kevin McCarthy were just utterly, were, were so distasteful to loud and vocal Republican conservative primary voters, and they want something different. But what, how much of the whole that? country are they? What, what is the thing? This is what I'm a little unclear on. What is the thing, at this point, knowing that Johnson's the guy that was so distasteful from Kevin McCarthy that is not very similar to what Johnson is now averred he is going to pursue? Well, he sounds like he has a different Ukraine policy. That's a difference. And hopefully, he will be able to actually let members, um, you know, br bring forward votes on individual is, is packages. Is he talking about breaking apart the proposed $105 billion of funding, which Democrat, which Joe Biden is pushing for? Because to say, if he is really as committed to funding Israel as it seems that he is, is articulating that as a number one priority, and the current package is to package that $14, $15 million, a billion dollars of Israel aid in with all of that Ukraine aid and border aid, uh, then well, yeah, well, it's constructively just going to be Kevin Well, McCarthy. it's a nice sentiment that whole, I look forward to, we'll, we'll find a way to come together, Hakeem Jeffries makes me nervous. Like, come together on what? Come together on a $105 bill, a, a gross, disgusting that spending package? That tends to be what it is. And I do wonder if some of the victory laps, I think we're going to talk about it a little bit later from um, Matt Gates, who obviously spearheaded all of this, uh, might be a little premature. Hmm. Um, but stick around. We'll, we'll get into that next on more, with more Rising. A massive manhunt is underway in the Northeast after at least 18 people were shot and killed in two connected mass shooting events in Lewiston, Maine. The tiny town of just 38,000 people is on lockdown as police search for the person of interest pictured there. Lewiston police said there was an active shooter situation at a bar and grill, a restaurant, uh, and at a, also a spare time recreation, a bowling alley about four miles away. Witnesses report seeing people running away from the bowling alley around 7 p.m. last night. 
Now, the person at the center of this manhunt has been identified by police as 40-year-old Robert Card. He's a firearms instructor in the Army Reserve assigned to a training facility in Seiko, Maine. Police warned Card is, quote, considered armed and dangerous. Over the summer, Card spent two weeks in a mental health facility, according to a document circulated to law enforcement officials and reported by the Associated Press. Card, according to the document, said he was, quote, hearing voices and threats to shoot up the military base he worked at. Survivors reported Card enter the bowling alley and began shooting. Many said they hid behind pins and climbed up into the machinery to remain safe. Police confirmed during a press conference just moments ago that the town's shelter-in-place will remain in effect as the search continues. Mm. Obviously a horrible situation, and we hope the perpetrator is caught swiftly before any more um, violence takes place. So this person is still obviously just a suspect, but, um, you know, the mental health um, aspect is interesting that he was—that he spent apparently two weeks in a mental health facility and, um, and you know, said he was hearing voices and actually talked about committing a mass shooting and was there for two weeks. And, you know, that raises questions about, um, you know, when someone enters that state, why is there no, why is there no, oh, do they have access to firearms? Should they have access well, to firearms? Well, that's an interesting question. So in Maine, where this, of course, took place, or is still, still taking place, potentially, there are no red flag laws. Now, if you recall, red flag laws are laws that do exactly that. Flag, when someone has had some uh, mental health issue or um, episode, uh, and put some limitations on their ability to access fire alarms, uh, fire, fire uh, arms. Um, they're also known as extreme risk laws. They allow a judge to temporarily remove a person's access to guns. Now, that does not exist in Maine. And in fact, uh, proposals to require background checks, this is some reporting from NBC News, for private gun sales and to create a 72-hour waiting period for gun purchases failed in Maine earlier this year. Proposals that focused on school security and banning bump stocks also failed back in 2019. Residents have also voted down some attempts to tighten gun laws in Maine. A, a proposal to require background checks for gun sales failed in a 2016 public vote. So it does seem like these issues, potential laws that might have helped prevent a situation like this were on the table in Maine over the last few years and were rejected. And it's... Um, Kind of horrible to consider if there could have been anything that prevented what so far has been already a massive loss of. Yeah, I mean, if if the if the voters decide they don't want that kind of restriction in place, then they're not going to have it, and then potentially a situation like this that maybe could have been prevented if you had that law. We say maybe because there's also a lot of it seems like slipping through the cracks, even when authorities are supposed to know about a person's. Um, uh, uh, should not have should not be someone who has access to firearms continuing on but um, but I don't know and Maine apparently also doesn't ban uh, high-capacity magazines I don't know that we have a lot of details about the nature of the gun that he was he's been using uh, so far there have also been some unconfirmed reports about his social media accounts that will wait to get more confirmation to get into um, to see if there were other any you know political incentives or anything that was happening here but so far, it just is a, it's a massive loss of life. Hearing people talk about having their 10-year-old's leg grazed by a bullet at the bowling alley on a, on a normal uh, you know, fall evening, um, 
I, I spoke to some of my friends who are parents this morning talking about, do I, do I want to put my daughter in the car seat while I'm par when I go to the, when I'm in the parking lot, am I going to be able to get, get her out quickly enough as I'm loading the groceries? Do I want to keep her closer to me as I'm loading the groceries in the back of the car? Because people are fear fearful. There's a kind of a terrorism that happens when people feel like even in the most mundane aspects of their life, they might be at risk from, um, senseless well, gun violence, so it's just a really I mean, tough, I, tough situation. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand why people feel like that, because it's very broadcast across the news for people to see. I mean, the kid is, though, like, more likely to be hit by a car or have a car accident in the parking lot than they are to be randomly shot. People don't have a good sense of what the relative age, uh, not to say there isn't far too much gun violence in the country, there surely is, but it's, it's, I mean, these kinds of actual incidents are not, do not account for the vast majority of gun violence. Um, well, I mean, I what, nothing should, to do then. Well, so people should take, well, people should, you know, should be aware of the relative dangers of things and that most, again, the overwhelming majority of gun crime is, well, there's suicides and there's one-off um, handgun incidents. Um, that maybe require some kind of policy solution, but I don't know that yeah, people suicides are highest should feel successful su suicides. People who are, end up actually killing themselves are highest in states with the most lax gun laws and with the most guns per yeah. capita. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, I, I think it's inarguable that easy access to firearms does um, increase incidence of successful suicides. Um, I mean, people have to kind of grapple with that and say, uh, would they be willing to have more restrictions on access to guns if that reduces suicides? I mean, it's a policy question, I guess. I do hope there's more reporting on what the dynamics of the fight over certain gun reforms in Maine are. Um, you know, were there, are there political figures who are going to take heat now for advocating against some of these red flag policies and bans on um, bump stocks and other kinds of weaponry that are typically used in mass shootings. Uh, is, is there going to be any political accountability at any point? How much of this, uh, the outcome of not having any red flag laws, was kind of the democratic will of the people of Maine, and how much was it a consequence of lobbying efforts? We've seen so often, and we've talked so frequently on this show, about the lack of relationship on a federal level between what the populace wants and what Congress is willing to pursue legislatively. And I'd be curious to hear more reporting about how Maine ended up in this situation and whether or not the political winds might change after a, a grievous, um, horrible event like the ones they've been experiencing over the last uh, 24 hours. Sure, although, I don't know, from looking at uh, polling on gun issues, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to me that there's a lot. I mean, rural, even Democrats who live in rural areas are hunters and want access to firearms. I mean, I'm sure there's some support for certain restrictions, but a broad kind of um, contempt for guns is not, I don't think, part of like a Is it a populist. broad contempt for guns to say that someone who was just hospitalized in a mental institution for saying they wanted to shoot up a military base to no, maybe not have access to a no, gun? I, 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 and I would be fine with a policy that restricts the person in that case. Yeah, so I'm curious. Yeah. Maine doesn't have that policy, and I'm curious whether an event like this will change people's opinion to the extent that they didn't already support that kind of a policy. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. More rising right after this.
Special Counsel Jack Smith wants Donald Trump completely silenced. He filed paperwork Wednesday requesting the court to reimpose a federal gag order on the former president as he's continuously lobbed attacks targeting witnesses in the case. Smith even suggested jail time should be considered if Trump keeps it up. Smith is prosecuting the D.C. case against Trump and his role in trying to obstruct Joe Biden's 2020 victory. Trump is facing a pair of fines, a $5,000 one on Friday and $10,000 yesterday for failing to follow New York Judge Engeron's gag order issued earlier this month. Now, that judge issued the fine, but not before he demanded Trump take the witness stand and also answer these comments. Let's watch. This judge is uh, a very partisan judge. With a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of them, perhaps even much more partisan than he is. The former president's ex-fixer, Michael Cohen, testified in the New York civil fraud trial yesterday in which he admitted Trump did not ask that he inflate financial records on his behalf. Trump's legal team requested the judge for an immediate verdict after Cohen's testimony, but that was denied. So we talked about the various gag orders, et cetera, on, um, on Donald Trump. I, I found it interesting. I just learned this. So the ACLU actually submitted a brief taking Trump's side in the, um, in the, in the, the gag order that Chut Judge Chutkan had ordered, saying that um, it's, it's impossibly broad and does, in fact, violate his, um, his free speech rights. Um, they, they say, reading, specifically they say the order is, like, too broad to be understood. Reading the order, the defendant, Trump, could not possibly know what he is permitted to say and what he is not. Yeah, it definitely should be narrowly tailored. I don't, haven't looked at the text of the order. But yeah. it certainly should not be the case that there's any ambiguity there. I do think that Donald Trump, the five and $10,000 orders, uh, if I understand correctly, was immediately after he was told not to say anything more disparaging about court staff. Remember, he had said the thing about the court clerk being in a relationship with Chuck Schumer, immediately hopped on Truth Social and did exactly that again. That seems less ambiguous. I think the question ultimately is going to be, given that he's a billionaire, if any of these five $10,000 fines are going to have the effect of keeping him from engaging in um, uh, conversations or tweets or truths that are constructively witness intimidation. And is there going to have to be basically a double standard for Donald Trump where he's able to get away with what other witnesses wouldn't be able to get away with because of the reality of him being a presidential candidate and weighing those competing concerns. That's that's a pretty tough spot for the court clerk yeah, and staff it, to be in. The ACLU alluded to that as well, um, writing, defendant's ability to speak publicly about the substance of the prosecution, even including potential witness and testimonies, is in many way inextricable from the 2024 presidential campaign in which he's a declared candidate. Um, I was particularly concerned about his possible inability, again, it was unclear from the, the gag order, to criticize Mike Pence if, you know, if they were doing a debate and that to the topic of January 6th came up. Um, you know, he has to be allowed to, to <laughs> elucidate, defend his actions, and criticize um, other people who are participated in, in the events of that day. That doesn't mean he gets to, you know, I, well, I don't know about disparaging, but he threaten or intimidate, um, you know, members of the of the court staff, but uh, but this was uh, this has been. I mean, this is all go, you know going down the the rabbit hole of just trying to stop Trump's speech, which is what I guess annoys so many people in law enforcement. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who would ultimately end up paying for it, but I do hope that people who are targeted by Donald Trump 
are able to get some recompense for any kind of private security protection we need to have. Um, judges, federal judges dealing with difficult cases often do have security. There was, I think, a, a funding bill within the last year or two um, where uh, Congress members were advocating to up the protections for judges precisely because of instances like this. So if in the interest of speech, it, the protection has to come on the other way, I think it should, because there's no doubt that we've seen a number of instances of people taking the kind of rhetoric that is coming out of this kind of corner of politics and running it with it in really destructive ways. Um, and I do think still there's no ambiguity about statements like the Supreme Court clerk is having a relationship with Chuck Schumer. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's hard, hard to see how a, that's part of your presidential campaign. Well, sure. I mean, you know, the remedy if you if you um, libel someone, if you commit defamation against someone, they can sue you, right? Yeah, unfortunately, court clerks making fifty thousand dollars a year aren't well, in the know, best but, position to make those kinds of assessments. Well, I know, but I, but I mean, <laughs> what I'm saying, we do provide broad license, even to say untrue and you know deranged things about Rachel. Yeah, people, I, I think right? she's I mean, probably I think she's probably less worried about her reputation uh, and more worried about being targeted. Um, I was alluding to uh, instances of this kind of targeting in the past and Donald Trump actually had to pay, of course, uh, in a defamation case for the two black women uh, who were running the polls down in Georgia, who he and another a number of other right-wing figures started to target and name by name as perpetrators of election fraud. And they won their suits, their names, their, their claims are part of the Georgia case as well. But they were targeted, they were harassed, they had to leave their homes, all of those kinds of things, because their names were circulated by Donald Trump and people in his uh, cohort in ways that were very destructive to their lives. So that is fundamentally the concern that I don't want to lose sight of. But of course, it does have to be balanced against um, Trump's First Amendment um, rights. I would think, running for president of America, that he also would have some concern and compassion for his constituents, his prospective constituents and his former constituents that might be harmed by his words and actions, and that it wouldn't require the law to intervene to keep him from potentially putting a target on somebody's back. Well, he should think about his campaign prospects as well. Yeah, but, he, uh, he, he in fact should. But just because you don't like what he says doesn't mean you get to shut him up. So. We'll continue following that and have more rising right after this. Alarm bells on the Capitol. Congressman Jamal Bowman has pleaded guilty this morning to one misdemeanor for falsely pulling a fire alarm in D.C. in a House office building last month. Bowman has been charged with setting off a false fire alarm in the building, a moment that added to the chaos of Congress's rush to avoid a government shutdown. Under an agreement with prosecutors, he will have his charge dropped in three months upon paying a $1,000 fine and writing an apology letter to the United States Capitol Police. A spokesperson for the Attorney General of the District of Columbia said Congressman Bowman has agreed to pay the $1,000 fine, the maximum for a misdemeanor charge, and wrote an apology letter for the incident. So this unfolded while I was on vacation. So I missed this news cycle the first time around. So he claims he just grabbed it accidentally. So this was uh, his Educate me. more Educate elaborate me, statement at the time. <laughs> 
He said, today, as I was rushing to make a vote, I came to a door that is, that is usually open for votes, but today would not open. I'm embarrassed to admit that I activated the fire alarm, mistakenly thinking it would open the door. I regret this and sincerely apologize for any confusion this caused, but I want to be very clear, this was not me in any way trying to delay any vote. It was the exact opposite. I was trying urgently to get to a vote, which I ultimately did, and joined my colleagues in a bipartisan effort to keep our government open. I also met after the vote with the sergeant-at-arms and the Capitol Police at their request and explained what happened. Et cetera, et cetera. So the argument that a lot of conservatives are making at the time was that this was just like a 1-6. I think Kevin McCarthy made this argument. Um, and he was trying to stop a vote from happening the same way that the alleged conspiracy that Donald Trump was engaged in on uh, 1-6 was to um, stop the elector count. Um, that what what's undermines that argument is that Jamal Bowman wanted to and eventually did vote in favor of the vote, not trying to obstruct it, but wanted to pass um, uh, the vote to the, the bill to keep the, the government funded. So I don't, I don't, that doesn't track. But it's as, a little as bit like to, the vote to certify the election. It was going to happen eventually anyway, <laughs> no matter how many windows they smashed or um, Sure, but, but the goal, you can at least argue, like, even if it was unlikely that the plan was going to succeed, if it had succeeded, like, if things went as planned, it would have yeah. been to disrupt the vote. As, as if, if Bowman got his druthers and got to the place where he was voting, the goal was to pass the vote, not to stop a vote, stop a vote count. So on the other hand, his explanation, like what was going through his head that would make him think that pulling the fire alarm was a way to get a door open, like, I don't know. That yeah. still seems really inscrutable to me. I watched the video footage and I didn't really quite know what I made of it. Um, it looked to me like maybe he was just like, spaced out or zoned out or something. Um, I'm a pretty absent-minded person, frankly, when I, like if I'm thinking about something else, and I'll be like, what am I doing? Um, I guess I, I guess it could happen, I don't know. There was a sign um, that, there was some debate as to whether or not I mean, the I can't imagine accidentally confusing. pulling the fire alarm, because it's pretty clearly, it's not usually confusing what is the fire alarm. No, but so the sign on the door said, push until alarm sounds, three seconds, and the door will unlock in 30 seconds. So if you were really, like, if you're really stretching this, you could think, well, this door is normally open. The door is not opening today. I'm rushing to get to a vote. How do I get this door to open? It says, if the alarm sounds, the door will open. Let me make the alarm sound. I pull mm -hmm. the alarm. Maybe now the door will emergency unlatch. And the other thing that I think really undermined the kind of conservative argument that he was trying to stop the vote is that the vote was in a different building. Yeah. And the alarm did not go off really in the building where the votes were taking to place. Stop the vote, but. So, you know, at worst, it's just being someone being well, dumb. Let the punishment fit the crime. You're not supposed to do that. You yeah. have to pay a fine. Not really a big deal. Yeah. There were also a lot of jokes being made about how he was a principal and how he should know as a former <gasps> principal. Well, exactly that what is relevant. Policies are. That is relevant. But I said at the time, that, that, that is true. It is also the case that living in New York City walk-ups for so many years, there is often the door to the roof that you're not supposed to go on to, that has a sign that says you're not supposed to go on to it, and might even have a sign that says an alarm will ring if you do the push bar and go out that door. But everybody knows that you can go. Like, it's building by building, but one person tests it once, and then everybody in the building knows that you can go and have drinks on the roof. So, and the subway example is very similar, where in the New York subway system, every exit has the door that you're supposed to just use for like strollers or big things. But it says if you push this bar, the alarm will go off, and it doesn't. Like everyone knows 
if I have a stroller, I can go through that door. So I, I can see some counterexamples of why you might, in a moment of panic, get kind of confused about it. And he was rushing to a very important vote that he wanted to be successful, that he wanted to pass. Um, it's not an excuse. I think he's taking responsibility. I saw him give a statement uh, on Fox News saying, hey, I just got to take responsibility for my goof up. He's paying $1,000. He's not one of the richer congressmen, so it is going to hurt him a little bit more than, uh, let's say, Trump's five or ten thousand dollar gag order fine. <laughs> and I think uh, everyone will just gonna have to move on for this from this uh, from this one. Do the crime, do the time. <laughs> All right, uh, I'll be very careful about the fire alarms in the rising studio, and we'll have more coverage for you just in a minute. Joe Biden publicly doubted the death toll in Gaza during a speech earlier this week, saying he has no confidence in the numbers that are coming out of Palestine. Let's watch. Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. I'm sure innocents have been killed, and it's the price of waging a war. I think we should be incredibly careful. I think not we, the Israelis should be incredibly careful to be sure that they're focusing on going after the folks that are the pro propagating this war against Israel. And, uh, and it's against their interest when that doesn't happen. But I have no confidence in the number that the Palestinians are using. Palestinians are telling Biden snapped at a USA Today White House correspondent in a joint press conference he held yesterday at the White House with Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. The reporter tried to sneak in an extra question, which Biden didn't seem to take kindly to. Let's watch. But are these hostages uh, in jeopardy if there is a ground invasion? You want to make a speech? <laughs> no, look, yeah. obviously they're in jeopardy. The question is whether or not there's any way of getting them out. Biden's remark came after the reporter, Joey Garrison, asked two questions regarding the Israel-Hamas war, including the response to the threat from Iran, which Biden said he told the to Adeola the U.S. will respond to any aggression. So I think there's also been some um, news, some speculation that there will be an effort to kind of smoke out Hamas out of tunnels um, using some kind of gas. And the question has been whether, one, that is something that is actually in being planned for, and two, if that's the case, if that is basically an admission um, that the IDF is not prioritizing actually getting those getting hostages the rest of back. The hostages back, yeah, which should be the major goal. Still Americans being held. Um, the when questions are asked of John of John Kirby and other people, it's you know not clear what kind of priority this is being given or what kind of pressure Biden is actually exerting on the Israeli government. Right. Now, the first clip has gone mega viral um, precisely because there does seem to be a disconnect between how uh, credulous uh, the State Department, uh, the Biden administration, the U.S. government as a whole has been when believing certain facts and figures that are coming out of Israel versus uh, what's coming out of Palestine. And apparently there has been a pattern in practice over decades of American history that shows that prior to a bombing campaign, bombing campaigns, whether they are in um, Vietnam or Cambodia and other parts of the world, have been preceded by language where there is a downplaying of how many victims are, how many uh, casualties among civilians are being totaled by Americans. That enables, of course, them to act with impunity. Um, so Biden saying in that 
moment, kind of pivoting from talking about the growing death tolls now that, that they've gone up above 6,000 for dead civilian Palestinians, suddenly saying, well, we're not going to trust the death tolls anymore. Um, is a problem for folks. Uh, specifically, the Washington Post wrote a piece explaining why the death tolls coming out of uh, Gaza have historically been accurate and historically been credited. Um, for one, they say everyone uses the figures from the Gaza Health Ministry because those are gener generally proven to be reliable. That's from Omar Shakir, uh, Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch. He says, in the times in which we have done our own verification of numbers for particular strikes, I'm not aware of any time which there's been some major discrepancy. But there is this obvious implication here from Biden that because the numbers are coming out of Gaza, that they cannot be trusted. Yeah, look, we shouldn't be—no one should be downplaying the horrors, um, obviously, the horrors of the initial terrorist attack, and then also the horrors of civilian deaths um, being uh, uh, perpetrated against innocent uh, Palestinian people. Um, I mean, it, it's—, it's True that you shouldn't, you can't, no one can automatically trust what um, what the Gaza Health Ministry that is Hamas controlled is is saying. But also, no one should. You should certainly take with a grain of salt and not innately trust what IDF sources or American sources say about um, you know casualty estimates or what's happened in certain um, in, in certain circumstances. Like you know, we've gone back and forth with the hospital situation, with who's responsible, with what the evidence shows, with how many casualties there could possibly be. A lot of this is remains genuinely um, unclear. And if people are, people are right to be, to be um, skeptical of narratives on all sides of this conflict. I think the problem is that a lot of it is very clear, uh, because there's so much film and video of just tragically so many deceased named and identified Palestinians. Um, most recently, I think part of this, the reason why this is so aggravating and unnerving to people who are invested in the rights and well-being of Palestinians is that this comes one day after the news that we covered that Anthony Blinken had reached out to the Qatari government asking them to basically suppress Al Jazeera Arabic and, and, and downplay, I forget the exact words that were used, but to, to basically minimize the news coming out uh, of Gaza, where they're doing the most on-the-ground coverage, because it was considered to be too incendiary, not because it's inaccurate, but because apparently the reality on the ground, they believe, is going to provoke people to anger. And then within 24 hours of that news coming out, the bureau chief, the Al Jazeera bureau chief, um, who was reporting all of the, on this, who had sent his family, per the IDF's instructions, to southern Gaza, where they were supposed to be safe, were killed. Um, his wife and children were killed in a bombing that some people are arguing is targeted because there is this history of Israel killing journalists. There's been, I think, 20 journalists uh, over the last uh, 10 years or so. So for all of that to be happening, to literally see this bureau chief cradling his dead children and, and, the, and his wife, um, and to see the picture of, let's say, Justin Amash's second cousin being lifted from the rubble, and then for the president of the United States to say, well, we're not really sure what's really going on on the ground. We're disputing claims of deaths in Gaza, I think, really struck people the wrong way. Right. Um, I mean, there's nothing to dispute. There's a lot of—there are horrific casualties. We've seen pictures of 
dead, innocent people, and they're really, they're really horrifying. I mean, everyone should be careful about what they're looking at. I saw the other day, Representative Ilhan Omar was um, retweeting um, images that were claimed to be of dead Palestinians that were actually um, years old from a Syrian earthquake. So people—she was corrected by Community Notes, which is one of the only, like, useful fixers of misinformation problems on social media. Um, so everyone should be, you know, very careful and double-check and triple-check and acknowledge the extent of the unknown, but there's nothing to deny that um, innocent people are dying by the thousands. Yeah. I mean, one last thing I think that is troubling is that there is just a different sentiment coming from the podium, uh, the mouthpieces of the American government. Uh, uh, the uh, I think it was actually the Russia UN United Nations account put together a supercut showing how differently uh, John Kirby, uh, national defense spokesperson, talked about Ukrainian casualties versus Palestinian casualties and how the messages coming out of the United States with one conflict seems to be attacks on civilians are egregious, attacks on water supplies and foods are um, war crimes. This is absolutely unforgivable. But when talking about Palestinians, the message is, well, this has just got to happen. Bad things are going to happen. Everybody tighten your belt, buckle up, because you're in for a hard ride. If we can play that, I think that's—it'll be instructive as well. This is war. It is combat. It is bloody. It is ugly. And it's going to be messy. And innocent civilians are going to be hurt going forward. I wish I could tell you something different. I wish that that wasn't going to happen. Uh, but it is, it is going to happen. And uh, that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it uh, dismissible. It doesn't mean that we aren't going to still express concerns about that and, and do everything we can to help the Israelis do everything they can to minimize it. Uh, but uh, but that's, that's unfortunately the, the nature of conflict. This is what she's doing in Ukraine. What she's doing in Ukraine. And think that any um, uh, ethical, moral individual could justify that. It's difficult to look at the. Sorry. It's difficult to look at some of the images and imagine that any well thinking, serious, mature leader would do that. <clears throat> so I can't talk to his psychology, but uh, I think we can all speak to his depravity. When Putin does it, it's depraved. No serious moral leader could ever do such a thing. Um, when Israel does it, it's got to be done. Well, right. I mean, I think his position is probably that—not that I'm agreeing with it, but that um, Russia is the aggressor and Ukraine the victim. and. Um, Israel is the victim and Hamas the aggressor, and these are casualties in the course of Israel trying to rid out Hamas. I think, frankly, most people would accept that, some, uh, like he says, some loss of innocent life is going to happen during a retaliatory effort to take out a terrorist group. The question becomes, when is it way too much and you're actually making yourself worse off because you're killed way more people than were even innocent people that even died in the initial attack you're responding to? And when does it become the case where now you're just immiserated—the survivors are going to be so worse off and angry and vengeful, and you're going to—and and that's going to just grow—that's what I'm worried about, growing ter more terrorism, you know, 10 or 15 years from now among the survivors who, um, who, who will end up 
hating um, what the Israeli government has done to them and what the U.S. government has done in support of that. So that's something we should keep in mind. Uh, yeah, especially since the Israeli military has admitted that it didn't predict this attack, it didn't see it coming, that the Hamas is largely underground and not vulnerable to the air bombardments that have, at this point, kill, um, eliminated more than 40 percent of all residential housing in Gaza. It's also important to continually know that this conflict did not begin on October 7th, that much like there's this debate in the Ukraine context of how the State Department left to say this is an unprovoked war without wanting to have any conversation about how we got to this place in Ukraine. Similarly, there is a real um, reluctance to have a conversation about the fact that the a priori condition here was 2.3 million people being kept in an open-air prison and Palestinians um, across the region being treated to apartheid conditions, and that's according to 18 humanitarian organizations, including Israeli humanitarian organizations. And what do you do? The fundamental problem, some people think, is rooting out Hamas, which Israel's actions, it admittedly, is not gearing them toward doing. Hamas is not going to be gone even if they raise every building in Gaza to the ground. And the a priori condition for people who are invested in the interest and well-being of Palestinians is how do you end the occupation? That is the thing that needs to be stopped if you want the cycle of violence to end. It is. It is. I cannot stop thinking about the fact that Osama bin Laden's manifesto, in, that, that in which he argued that the civilians in the twin towers were justified targets, echoes so closely what we're hearing out of Israel and the justification of killing all of the civilians in 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 Gaza. And when you talk about the cycle of violence, that is what's ringing so loudly in my head. Do we really want to be using the Osama bin Laden logic for why it's okay to bombard Gaza? No, we don't. Um, I mean, again, we just played clips of, of civilian deaths being bemoaned, not saying they're equally guilty and all should die. Um, so I'm not sure the equivalency with bin Laden, but I... Uh, agree with you that that should not be the policy. I mean, you bring up the Russia example. Yes, and we've talked on the show, and we should talk about the bad policies, including of the U.S., that led to Russia making the decision to invade Ukraine, but that doesn't justify or make okay what Russia has done, which is cause a humanitarian crisis that resulted in tons of people. So we can talk about the policies that maybe ought to have been different and wish we could have been different that would have prevented this from happening. Um, and similarly, we should do that in the Israeli-Palestinian context without saying that, in my view, at, it, that at all justifies or makes okay or makes that, tactically smart the um, so, so killing see, of random When you see Kirby crying civilians. at the idea of the destruction that's happening in Ukraine, crying, you know, crying at the mm -hmm. podium versus him kind of affirming repeatedly that Pal Palestinians just have to die, because that's part of what it means for Israel to defend itself. That doesn't strike you as a kind of um, clear illustration of the different value of civilian loss? I don't—no, I don't think the civilian—the Palestinian civilian loss is being taken seriously enough. It ought yeah. to be taken more seriously. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's pretty striking. Um, and I think you're seeing consequences for Joe Biden. I just saw it reported that his uh, approval ratings are lower 
than they have been historically at 37%. There's been an 11-point drop since uh, this crisis uh, started. So well, the U.S. getting tangled in another overseas war um, wouldn't, will not be something that boosts those poll numbers, I will predict, but we'll see. Yeah, and not just any overseas war, but the U.S. being seen as contributing to the enormous loss of civilian life that's happening so front and center because of social media and independent news, people are seeing it. People are seeing when this Al Jazeera bureau chief is standing there holding his child walking down the street. People are, people are aware of this, um, and the, the images aren't going to stop. The images the, of the tragic events on October 7th have stopped because it was the, that one singular event. And I think in the media, Whoa, in wait, the wait, media wait. war— Well, the, the fear of the Israeli forces is that that would not be the end. If, if Hamas is allowed to continue to operate, there will be more October 7th. Yeah, that is the fear. But that's not what's happening. What we're seeing in terms of the images that are coming out all over the news is every day the death toll of Palestinian civilians goes up hundreds, hundreds, hundreds more. Two days ago we were talking about 5,000 dead. Now we're talking about 7,000 dead. So I'm just saying that the reality is the media, from the media sphere, I think Americans are not just turned off by the abstract idea of us getting into another war. They're very much turned off by the idea that American dollars and quite literally American manufactured weaponry is being used to kill the children that they're seeing on their television screens. Well, you let us know and we'll have more rising right after this. Magic Mike Johnson. Is that what we're going to call him? I guess so. <laughs> Florida Congressman Matt Gates has praised the new Speaker of the House after his shocking ascent to the podium yesterday. Let's listen in. He is sharp. He will be as respected in the halls of our, uh, in the homes of our most meaningful, righteous, and patriotic donors as he will at the rallies with our most enthusiastic and meaningful activists. It is going to be a great moment for the House. And you know what? At the very end, when some people didn't know if they could still even bring back McCarthy, a few of them just left the room and didn't vote. And the swamp is on the run. That's MAGA is ascendant. And if, if you don't think that moving from Kevin McCarthy to MAGA Mike Johnson shows the ascendance of this movement and where the power in the Republican Party truly lies, uh, then then you're not paying attention. But they are they are crying. They are hand wringing and bedwetting over on K Street because we have an honorable, righteous, righteous man uh, who is about to take this position. He's going to do great things for the country. I mean, look, I think there's some truth to Matt Gaetz saying here, we got a win. We replaced McCarthy with a speaker who is, seems to be, it remains to be seen, I guess, but is likely much more conservative, um, much more Trumpy, um, is more in line with what Matt Gaetz, Jim Jordan, that faction wants. So... Whether that's going to result in any substantive difference remains to be seen, but I see why Matt Gates is feeling pretty proud of himself. He successfully did the thing. I mean, he did what he set out to do. There is definitely an argument for it. And again— Oh, and also he's right. Sorry, I didn't write. He's also right about the bedwetting going on among more establishment conservative types of, like, never-Trump Republican people. I've been seeing their reaction. Their reaction is like, yep, Matt Gates won, and that's bad yeah. from their perspective. But they totally agree that this was Matt Gates running the show, taking things over, got what he wanted, and then they also think yeah. that's a crisis so for there, democracy. That's definitely an argument if you were invested in the, uh, can Matt Gates control the speaker? Can, can the— 
Freedom Caucus put someone more MAGA in the spot than Kevin McCarthy. Sure, if that was the goal, then you win. It is a little disappointing, I think, to hear the focus be on that than some of the agenda items that Matt Gates purported to care about so much when he was making speeches on the House floor about corruption in the swamp, et cetera. I'm not hearing the argument for why uh, Magic Mike here is a less um, establishment actor when it comes to the economics, when it comes to bringing a floor vote on something like uh, ending insider trading in the House. The, the draining the swamp was actually kind of full-blown corruption issues that Matt Gates was kind of throwing up when people were attacking him and accusing him of being self-aggrandizing. I would like to see more evidence that Mike Johnson is invested in actually draining the swamp as opposed to just being pro-Trump. Being pro-Trump yeah. is not a policy. Yeah. Right. Uh, and we just have to find out whether any of that happens. Obviously, the the... The insider trading thing is just so frustrating. The corrupt, that kind of corruption stuff, so frustrating because it's so obvious the American people in all political traditions want that kind of thing ended. And um, why can't it happen? Oh, right, because the people in charge of ending it are the ones who are enriching themselves from it. So Now, what's really interesting is that as the voting was going on earlier this week, at least one of the other candidates got dinged for, one, not voting to... Uh, you know, protect Trump, uh, going against Trump during all of the election mm -hmm. ceiling stuff around 1-6, and also for being pro-gay marriage. Now, the new clip has emerged uh, about Mike Johnson, in which he does something, which, again, I think is a good thing, but if the uh, Republicans' attitude toward um, uh, the other speaker candidates is any indication, might get him into a little hot water. Let's roll this clip. And I've thought often through all these ordeals over the last couple of weeks about the difference in the experiences between my two 14-year-old sons, Michael being a black American and Jack being white, Caucasian. They have different uh, challenges. Uh, my son, Jack, has an easier path. He just does. They're, the interesting thing about both of these kids, Michael and Jack, is they're both handsome, articulate, really talented kids, gifted by God to do lots of things. But the reality is, and no one can tell me otherwise, my son Michael had a harder time than my son Jack is going to have simply because of the color of his skin. And that's a reality. It's an uncomfortable, painful one to acknowledge, but people have to recognize that's a fact. What should we do about that? I think that we need, uh, we really do need systematic change. I think we need transformative solutions. I think we, we're at a moment where we can begin to do more to form that more perfect union, as it says in the first line of the Constitution. So Marjorie Taylor Greene objected to Emmer because he supported the gay marriage bill, et cetera. Do you think uh, that Johnson's going to get in trouble for saying that black people and white people have different challenges well, and acknowledging that racism is real? I mean, no. I, th I think that was fine. I, mean, I think it was fine, too, for but... Well, I, <laughs> he wasn't calling for a specific policy that might be objectionable. He was acknowledging that there are still lingering effects of racism in our society and your average black and white person have can have different experiences and can be treated are, are treated differently and there and there are a lot of ways in which an average black person could experience harmful effects because of that I don't, I don't know, know Robert, that fine. sounds pretty woke to me I, I thought that acknowledging those kinds of differences was racism in and of itself, that we shouldn't teach people in school that they might be treated differently because of their race, that you don't want to make white people feel no, guilty about... No, we shouldn't about... treat people because of their race, that they are differently. That's the... No, nobody's... Tr 
that is that is actual racism. Saying that you right. are different and you are less than because you are black is racism, and that has never been on the agenda. If anybody, even the most DEI-ish thing that I think is kind of ridiculous and not really targeted to doing anything useful, that has never been the argument. The argument is that society is unequal, that there are disparities in as a society, there's institutional racism. All of the words that I'm saying are words that the anti-woke Christopher Russo crowd have been objecting to. That is what I mean, CRT I is. I hate to always go back to this example because I, I do rely on it often, but it's just the best example of what I'm talking about and what I think the, the best, um, most informed and most um, good faith actors trying to eliminate what they've termed as CRT. I don't know if that's the right it's word not for it. What well, it is. Okay, the aspects of white supremacy document, which does come up in educational so, settings okay, and, museum, and so, says okay. white people are hardworking, black people are different. And white people is, are is on that time, what, that black people taught, are different. Is that what's being taught in the Florida University that uh, Ron DeSantis and Christopher Rufo commandeered and caused like 25% of right. students I don't and staff agree. to leave? I, I don't agree with that action at all. But that and, document and, is the kind of racist funding for African-American studies in the state of Florida? That should be that. Well, well, now you're just switching to something else. I'm, I'm saying not, that's the bad thing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. That's what the good faith critics but, of what they've termed CRT are trying to eliminate. Okay, I don't want to be accused of switching, so let's talk about it. Ron DeSantis, is he or is he not uh, a, a face of this wokeness movement? Has he not made wokeness a core part Brianna, of his I wrote, own? you can go to reason.com, the, the magazine I also write for, and I wrote ask. an article yesterday criticizing Ron DeSantis for his for specifically for shutting down a Palestinian you agree with me that Ron DeSantis has made wokeness a linchpin of his campaign and has been in many ways the face of wokeness, right? And that he appointed Christopher Rufo to some position at this university. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but a policy-driven, you know, Christopher Rufo is no fan of mine. He has said repeatedly that libertarianism is the thing he hates most. Okay, and I don't claim him as one of my... In the course of all of that, they stopped federal funding to African-American uh, studies programs at state-funded schools in Florida and eliminated all of those kind of um, identity group uh, uh, studies from the, that university, that specific university where Christopher Rufo was appointed in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. So you would agree with me that that is much more expansive than objecting to one document that was used in some niche places in the United States of America for DEI purposes in a HR DEI employment context, It right? shows up all over the place. It shows up in... Okay, let's say it happened at a thousand workplaces across America. Don't you... Would you agree that what the, is under attack is much more than one document that we can all agree is bad? I don't, need to, I don't need to rank these things. I'm opposed to both. I'm not I'm ranking them. I'm saying that the attack on African-American studies is much more broad than this one DEI document that you're using as example. The attack on African-American studies in Florida? And across the country. Yes. How is it under attack across the country? By school boards, et cetera, who are trying to exclude CRT, which is Christopher Rupo's own statement. The objective has been to make CRT, yeah. a word and a statement that is amorphous and people can map onto, synonymous for any teaching of the continued disparities that black people and other groups face in the United States of America that have policy implications. Right. To restate, the good faith actors on this subject are pointing to DEI instruction in workplaces and many educational settings Is that Christopher treat Rufo black and white people. No. Okay, so why, why are we talking about fundamental. good faith actors? We're talking about Christopher Rufo, the Republican well, Party. No, you brought him up. You, ta- you said. Yeah, I am talking. Let me, let me, I'll correct it. I am talking about everybody. This wokeness, the leading president, the second, the second and uh, most leading candidate for the Republican Party, 
Also, Vivek Ramaswamy has been talking about wokeness in a much more expansive way than that one DEI document. So that's why it's, this is germane. To those people who are the leading voices at critiquing wokeness in the United States of America and the Republican Party, saying just the obvious, like this guy said, that I have a black son, I have a white son, I'm raising them the same in the same house, and I can observe the different challenges that my black son is facing in the world because of racism than what my white son is facing, would not be would not be a framing that is accepted by that crowd, by the Christopher Rufo crowd. I'm just saying, pretending that—and I'm not saying you're doing this, but a, a lot of liberals do do this, to talk about this attack on CRT like there's no legitimacy to it whatsoever, that there's nothing wrong with DEI. Um, I mean, what's their—Robin uh, their, Rob, DeAngelo is still, is like, still, still gets booked to speak at conferences and educational seminars and so forth, putting, putting forth these utterly discredited, harmful, and at their root racist ideas that shouldn't be taken seriously by anyone, but they are. Rufo describes a strategy to oppose critical race theory as intentionally using the I term do to conflate various race-related ideas in order to create a negative association. Rufo said, quote, we will eventually turn CRT toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand if category. If you Google my name and Christopher Rufo, you'll see multiple times where I have disagreed and criticized I really appreciate that, Robbie. You've been so good on this. You've been it. so good on this, but I just wanted to have a little conversation with people who haven't been good on it. Okay. So I want to give you all the credit in the world, but this one just isn't about you personally. It's about whether or not Johnson, by saying something anodyne and normal, that would have been the completely normal thing to say like 15 years ago, might find himself in the crosshairs of the Republican Party once they find out that he doesn't think that any mention of race is CRT and therefore bad, which, as I just read, was Christopher Rufo's but no one has actually No one has actually criticized him for it. Well, they haven't found it yet, but maybe once they see this clip, they'll realize how <laughs> virulent and unpleasant this man really is. Oh, boy. More rising right after this. has released new photographs showing before and after satellite images. These show the extent of the total obliteration of several Gaza neighborhoods in just weeks' time. Meanwhile, Israeli troops conducted a raid into Gaza overnight to, quote, prepare the battlefield for this expected ground invasion. That's according to the Israeli military. Now, the raid comes after the United Nations warned that it nears running out of fuel in the Gaza Strip. And this comes after nine Democrats and one Republican voted against new Speaker Mike Johnson's resolution affirming U.S. support of Israel's war against Hamas. Those representatives are Jamal Bowman, Andre Carson, Cory Bush, Al Green, Summer Lee, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Delia Ramirez, Rashida Tlaib, and Thomas Massey. Massey explained his no vote in a Twitter post, saying he does not support sanctions against a sovereign country, nor does he support, quote, open-ended promise of military support that is so broad that it could be interpreted to commit us uh, to commit U.S. soldiers to the conflict. Yes, I really appreciated uh, Thomas Massey, Republican, his statement on this, um, which is more in line with, um, with you know, the non-interventionist uh, wing of the Republican Party that includes um, Senator Rand Paul, who's also calling for <clears throat> excuse me, the re, uh, withdrawal of, of troops, uh, U.S. troops that are in uh, Niger, that he says there's no 
congressional authority for them to be there, to be in a conflict with the government of Niger. And if they're attacked, that could—again, that risks getting us involved in, in warfare. We don't want our soldiers in places for no reason to come under attack. So I was glad to see this from Massey. You know, Massey says he agrees with parts of the, of the statement, that he wants to affirm that Israel—the Israeli people have been victimized and are going to defend themselves, but he does not support um, giving them an endless pile of money and weapons to do whatever they want with in a way that's going to draw the U.S. into the conflict. Yeah, Rashida Tlaib also made a similar statement saying that, I have and continue to denounce the killing of civilians, no matter their faith or ethnicity, targeting civilians is a war crime no matter who does it. Do not confuse my vote against this one-sided resolution with a lack of empathy for all those who are grieving. I voted against this resolution because it is a deeply incomplete and biased account of what is happening in Israel and Palestine and what has been happening for decades. This resolution rightly mourns the thousands of Israeli citizens killed and wounded in the horrific attacks, but explicitly does not mourn the thousands of Palestinian civilians, including over 2,000 children alone, killed and wounded in the collective punishment of Palestine. Uh, she goes on, obviously, Interestingly, the establishment uh, Democrats did not take kindly to these nine people who did not go along with this um, resolution. Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, said that lawmakers who plan to vote against this resolution, quote, someone who votes against this, I would think, doesn't have a soul. Um, that's the language that is coming out against anybody who wants to stand against um, uh, war crimes. I, I don't know uh, how else. How else to put it? Yeah, I mean, the, the American people have given Israel more money than any other country on earth. The American people have given Ukraine a lot of money. They give all sorts of nations lots of money. They're giving Ukraine money despite uh, way more than uh, the European people are helping with that war effort, even though it's really more of a security issue for Europe than it is for the U.S. The American people are, are not soulless. They're extremely generous. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, nothing actually makes me angrier than when political figures get annoyed that the American people don't want to send even more money overseas. Like, if this is so important to you, Debbie Wasserman Schultz or whoever it is, you can write a check then. Like, you can spend your personal fortune um, handing out um, uh, uh, donations to other countries' governments for their security needs. For that, like, Israel not, is not a, it's not a poor country. It can it provide for not. its own defense. Why do we have to do it? D Debbie Wasserman Schultz thinks you're soulless for asking some questions about whether this is in the best interest of the country we're actually a part of. And when you look disgusting. at, and when you look disgusting. at those images, I think it does really continue to raise this question of what self-defense really looks like. The images of total neighborhoods being obliterated, over 42 percent of all apartments, all residential housing in the entire area being gone. I mean, I'm reminded of a quote from an IDF spokesperson, Adem, uh, Admiral uh, Daniel Hagari, shortly after the seventh, uh, October 7th attacks. He said the emphasis is on damage and not accuracy. And I do think that when you look at those pictures, it reflects exactly that. Um, a reminder, we were talking about a few days ago, maybe last week, people in the hospitals, medical practici practitioners, being forced to drink the IV fluid in backs, because that was the only potable water that was left. And they're treating patients in these um, conditions. There was reporting at, AB at ABC that one surgeon had to amputate half of a foot of a nine-year-old boy because it had become infected 
the lack of medical equipment and clean water has led to amputations, and that this was done with only slight sedation on the hallway floor as his mother and sister watched. I mean, that's yeah. really what people are experiencing at this time, and the question remains, why are we, as, as U.S. citizens, continuing to not only fund, but endorse on a global stage? Uh, what it, how did uh, Vivek Ramaswamy put it yesterday? Um, offer a diplomatic Iron Dome that covers and protects everything that the Israeli government is doing at this time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's. Yeah, it's a very, lot. Well, very it, hard to see a lot of these images. Yeah. Earlier this week, the former Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Dan Gillerman, made shocking comments about the Palestinian people while on Sky News. Let's watch some of that. I'm very puzzled by the constant uh, concern which the world and, uh, and also Britain, I must say, Mark, is showing for the Palestinian people and is actually showing for these horrible inhuman animals who have done the worst atrocities that this century has seen and the worst atrocities that Jews have suffered since the Holocaust. I mean, you know, when, when the United States reacted to 9-11, I don't remember people shedding tears for the Taliban or Al-Qaeda. Your country, Mark, actually, Britain, actually joined them and even sent your royals to fight in Afghanistan. So we have the inhuman animals language uh, recurring again, along with this, you know, surprise or frustration that you hear coming out of a number of Israeli officials now that anyone should be concerned at all about the death of civilians. Yeah, again, I have no problem describing the terrorist group as inhuman animals, um, but we should not um, expand that to uh, the, the Palestinian people who are who are themselves victims of what this group has done to Gaza. Um, I also think we should like we should not look back on 9/11 and the immediate what happened in its wake as like a good example of sound policy coming to fruition. We Correct. regret. Uh, I, I don't know how you feel about it in in England, but in the U.S. there is profound regret among. Democrats and Republicans. Republicans are some of the loudest and most frustrated with the uh, the the empowerment of of a federal government to violate our civil liberties. That all that all sprang from that. It would have been so beneficial to stop and think before we passed the Patriot Act. To stop and think before we had endless NSA surveillance. To stop and think before we spent billions of dollars um, invading and destroying another sovereign country with all the damage it did to that country, for what? For what? To make the Middle East better off? Like, a lot of people uh, don't, I, I think, rightly say, we don't feel safer because of the situation the Middle East is in now versus when Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi were still in charge of their countries. Um, the Taliban got to get Afghanistan back eventually anyway. What was it for? What was it we for? We left. The same, the, same, the same government's in charge there now. So stopping and thinking would have been beneficial, and uh, anyone trying to cut off a conversation by racing to that, to, to some preordained conclusion that we need to be more militant or more unthinking or more bloodthirsty um, has just totally been hiding under a rock for the yeah. last 20 years. I do think bloodthirsty is the right word to use. I mean, again, you have statement after statement after statement made not by casual people on the street who don't have any power, but by generals and other officials in the Israeli army. You had Ghassan Alian say, human animals will be—sorry, uh, we are— 
more of this human animal language. We're dealing with human animals. Human animals will be treated accordingly. You wanted hell and you'll get hell. Um, you, you had the statement that we just heard. You heard Benjamin Netanyahu saying we will turn Gaza into an island of ruins. I think the imagery that we saw at the top of the segment, it reflects that's exactly what's been going on. The, the statement, we're focusing on destruction, that accuracy from Daniel Hagari, the, the Army spokesperson. I mean, how many times does someone have to tell you exactly what they're all about before we realize that we're kind of endorsing, not kind of, we are explicitly endorsing with Biden's visit to Israel, this exact behavior. And it's also worth noting, we covered this a little bit in another segment, but there's now um, new reporting that uh, uh, a spokesperson admitted um, an Israeli official admitted in an interview that the Al Jazeera journalist was, in fact, targeted shortly after this news. Um, now, there has been so other—go yeah, ahead. I'm looking at this now, and this, this comes from this Suleiman Ahmed account, just doing the translating. I have no idea if it's accurate. I do re remember that this is, was the account that shared pictures of um, claiming it was pictures of dead Palestinian children that Ilan Omar retweeted that was actually— images of kids who'd been gassed by Assad. Yeah. So, I so there are a, people, there are a number of Arabic speakers who say that the, trans, that the subtitles on the Arabic is accurate. And I'm waiting to see if any Hebrew speakers, it's originally in Hebrew, um, can weigh in as well. Um, but it is, it's, it's a very difficult time. Uh, I think your caution is warranted. But it's a different, very difficult time to be, I think, an American on the outside, feeling absolutely no control over what the foreign policy direction of the country is, with 66% of Americans, again, supporting a ceasefire. So we'll continue um, to cover this, obviously. More rising right after this. Well, the FBI has reportedly received tips from over 40 confidential sources about Joe Hunter and James Biden's alleged criminal activity. That's according to Republican Senator Chuck Grassley. Now, in a letter to Merrick Garland and released to Fox News Digital exclusively, Grassley claims that an FBI task force within the Washington field office, quote, sought to, and in some cases successfully, shut down reporting and information from those sources by falsely discrediting the information as foreign disinformation. Mm, recently, this clip of newly minted Speaker Mike Johnson grilling Merrick Garland over the Hunter Biden investigation has gone viral. Let's watch. Have you had personal contact with anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation? Uh, don't I, don't, I don't recollect the answer to that question, but the FBI works for the Justice Department. It's. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You don't Department. recollect. You don't recollect whether you've talked with anybody at FBI headquarters about an investigation of the president's son? I, I don't believe that I did. So, you know, to recap, so these are confidential sources at the FBI, various FBI agencies. It was not centralized as different field offices around the country um, accumulated this information from these confidential sources over the course of the previous investigations. And then, according to Grassley, so this isn't like new. This is he's it's it's new that it happened, but this has happened in the past. Grassley says that um, some of these um, uh, 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 the investigations into uh, into doing something with the information they received got shut down because um, that the the evidence being offered by these um, these confidential sources was discredited as so-called foreign misinformation, um, which you know raises red flags given that 
Um, so many um, law enforcement, national security experts, former heads of the CIA, you know, came together and signed that letter saying that the whole laptop story in the first place, the New York Post laptop story, had all the similarities and hallmarks of a Russian misinformation influence campaign. So, and, and we know, you know, how that how that turned out. We know that that was a completely false evaluation of what was a legitimate news story and a legitimate, a, a real, a tangible piece of information that Russia had not had anything to do with. So then the question becomes, was that same approach taken with um, information that might be relevant to any kind of criminal inquiry into what the Bidens are doing? And it was, was it dismissed along those same totally incorrect lines? Yeah, so first and foremost, it's so juvenile to assess the credibility of evidence purely because of its source. It's like a built-in logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you should be skeptical or scrutinize the source and consider whether or not there are motives involved that might turn you know, taint the information, that. that's one thing. But for if the conversation stops and started at this could be Russian misinformation, well, you have to first prove that it's misinformation. Information that happens to be from Russia doesn't mean it's wrong. If a Russian says the sky is blue, you'd think that half of D.C. would say, no, it's not, it's red. Although, ironically, that would make you more Russian in some ways. But, you know, after right. we've gone through all of this, we've gone through this, the Steele dossier, the mainstream press had no problem running with, even though it was later discredited. Um, and to see continually that potentially useful and necessary investigations might have been held up because of the specter of Rus Russian misinformation is really frustrating. I will say, however, that at this stage, I still remain skeptical that in anywhere buried in any of this is a smoking gun that I think some conservatives are hoping for, tying um, not just Hunter Biden's business dealings to Joe Biden, but really proving in a meaningful way that there was a, a pay-for-play scheme afoot here. Right. O outside of sure. what I think is already the bad behavior that so many rich people and, and, yeah. and others nepotistically engage with all the time. And maybe they'll never be able to muster enough evidence that that was the case. Um, but man, does the process to get there seem pretty suspect to me. Um, given the, I mean, the, the misinformation framing is just so whenever I see that now, I go, okay, wait, what are they actually alleging? Mm -hmm. Because how many times have law enforcement's contentions along these lines been just totally wrong? Whether it's um, the laptop story, whether it's um, the F FBI agents communicating with Twitter and saying we would like this list of accounts destroyed because these are Russian-generated bots, and, and Twitter's, my, the pre-Elon people, not crazy right-wingers, the, the, the Twitter, the normal, nice, liberal Twitter moderators looking and saying, these are, these are Americans, these are legitimate accounts, this is just wrong. Um, they've, been, they've been so wrong, the national law enforcement, in their messaging on these topics, so I don't I don't trust it at all, and I'm, I would be greatly concerned that people with relevant um, evidence or testimony were not listened to because some so-called national security expert says, you know, that sounds like something Russia would say. Which is not, which, as yeah. you point out, is not a legitimate. Not even if argument. Russia would say it, is it, is it right or is it wrong? Yeah. Is it not? It, it, it could be. It could be in Russia's interests. It could be something they they want you to know, and it could still be a, like a piece of information that's relevant to an investigation or to what the American public would like to know about what went on. So, uh, so I hope to hear more. We need more disclosure on what this process looked like, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm curious what you make of the Mike Johnson connection. We're all just getting to know him now, but now we're that we're looking, his greatest hits. <laughs> his greatest, greatest hits. now that we're looking more closely, it does seem that he has been part of the 
you know, group of Republicans that have been very uh, skeptical of the FBI and critical of it. Um, do, do you think that we might see more meaningful movement on these calls to defund the FBI um, that up until this movement have been largely rhetorical now that you have someone like Mike Johnson in the speaker's chair? I mean, I hope so. I hope he takes very seriously what is clearly one of the most important issues uh, in the upcoming election for many Republican voters is the perceived weaponization of law enforcement against um, Donald Trump and against um, conservatives, the overreach that has occurred and the, and the sense of unfairness um, they have about it. And uh, uh, that's a concern that conservatives and a lot of people on the left can link up and, you know, walk arm in arm down the street um, about how uh, how violating of people's civil liberties and due process and free speech, um, the G-men have been on, on so many fronts. So um, I think there was a—I think many conservatives, your Matt Gates types, your Jim Jordan types, were not confident that when McCarthy denounced the, the deep state, the, the overreach, that he actually means it. And maybe this guy has a little bit more cred. Now, having more cred and actually doing something about it, there's a vast gulf, yeah. obviously. And Republicans frequently continue to fund agencies and organizations that are aspects of the government that they say are, are malicious and working against them. And by the way, here's a check. Here, your budget just got boosted for next year. I don't understand it. And a lot of Republican voters don't understand it. There are, you know, a couple. You know, your Thomas Masseys, your Rand Pauls, who are pretty good on actually wanting to defund some of these things, but uh, they end up being lone voices. So Yeah, I mean, I keep going back to the interview with we did with Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. and, you know, I've taken a lot of heat for very vocally and loudly agreeing with wanting to defund the FBI. And I uh, argue that progressives should be picking up the ball here and running with it and sponsoring legislation that would do so in a way that actually is geared toward preventing the kind of overreaches that the left and others have experienced in the past, as opposed to it just being narrowly tailored ploy to try to keep one of the mm -hmm. richest and most powerful men in America from having any culpability for the crimes that he has been accused of. And when I asked Marjorie Taylor Greene if there had been any legislation drafted, any efforts to reach out to progressives, the answer to that, this was months ago now, was no. So I got to say, I'm kind of skeptical. I do think that a lot of the rhetoric around defunding the FBI that's happening on the right is largely performative. Um, but I would like to be proven wrong and to see if Mike Johnson actually brings some kind of legislation to the floor that would actually start to put some meat behind these arguments. Hmm. Well, we will have more rising right after this. Off-duty Alaska airline pilot Joseph D. Emerson was accused of trying to disable the plane's engines mid-flight this past Sunday. Per reports, he tried to cut off the fuel by pulling a lever while sitting in the cockpit jump seat. Emerson was promptly escorted off the plane upon landing after being diverted to Portland. And according to records obtained by CNN, he admitted he had consumed psychedelic drugs, magic mushrooms, for the first time, 48 hours before the flight. Documents also reveal he had been up for 40 hours and he felt as if he was dreaming when he was in the cockpit. The plane's captain and first officer was successful in restraining him, convincing him to leave the cockpit where he had been sitting. Now, Tuesday, Emerson pled not guilty to 83 felony counts of attempted murder, 83 counts of reckless endangerment, and one count of endangering an aircraft. Prosecutors ultimately only charged him with one count of 
interfering with flight crew members in attendance. Alaska Airlines released a statement about the incident, writing, quote, he was approved to join the flight as a passenger and was seated in the flight deck jump seat. All gate agents and flight attendants are trained to identify signs and symptoms of impairment. They confirmed he was relieved of all duties. So this is a, a story that has been talked about a lot. On I, I like heard it on local radio. Uh, it has a lot of people's caught their interest. Um, look, I, I mean, I don't know what if the charges are necessarily will fit the crime, but you can't just let somebody get off for that. That's a very bad thing to do. And, and the rest of us are so policed about how we get on airplanes. You hear me complain about it a lot. You know, my feelings on the subject of TSA and everything. So the pilot's got to be held to, like, at least the same standard. Yeah, so to be clear, he was riding as a passenger. This is something that happens when passengers, when um, pilots just have to get from point A to point B. They are sometimes allowed to ride in with a jump seat, in like a side, like a side seat in in the um, cockpit, and he has to. You have to go through TSA and everything like everybody else. It's not as though he came in with a weapon or came in with an illegal substance. He had just taken the drugs beforehand, and having never taken them, he says before, and not knowing how it was going to manifest. That it could make you paranoid and crazy, and yeah. So he said that he thought he was dreaming and started pulling things, thinking it would wake him up. And to be clear, this is a kind of a funny story, but only because it didn't turn out very badly. Apparently. Um, because the Alaska Airlines said in a statement on Monday, this is from New York Times, that because some residual fuel remained in the line and because of the quick reaction of our crew, it didn't go worse. If Emerson had successfully pulled the engine shutoff handles down all the way, then it would have shut down the hydraulics and the fuel to the engines, turning the aircraft into a glider within seconds. Yeah, that's terrifying. Yes. Really terrifying. Yes. Um, so it sounds like he, he understood at some point that he was out of control, telling a flight attendant um, after he had left the cockpit, you need to cuff me right now or it's going to be bad. Um, after Mr. Emerson was restrained in the back of the plane, he tried to grab the handle of an emergency exit door but was stopped by a flight attendant, federal prosecutor yeah. said. This is about—what I find interesting about this is this is pretty much the only way— that a passenger can like can compromise and take down the plane post 9/11 like all of the security th measures we put most of them the vast majority do not do anything they do not matter the you remember the underwear bomber and those there's there's not a quantity of explosives that they can carry through and in any way actually the components to assemble an incendiary device are available in most airports after you've gone through mm -hmm. um, airport security. You can make a Molotov cocktail if you don't. <laughs> not, I don't want to get this video taken down. It's possible to do. Um, uh, but the major improvement to airplane security post 9-11 is that the cockpit door locks. They didn't used to do that. When they took over the planes on 9-11, they were able to actually storm the cockpit. Now the, the, the door's shut. It's locked. You can't get in there. There's with, no, it would, take, it would take an atom bomb to blow open that door. Uh, so the only way is if someone's already in the cockpit and means, and means harm to the plane. That's why the most likely explanation for the disappearance of that uh, Malaysia Airlines flight, which you know, really has captured uh, people's imaginations for so long, and the Atlantic had a good, years ago, really good explanation of what probably happened. What probably happened is the pilot just crashed it, mm. because that's basically the only way the plane can go down. So this is something to, long way of saying this is something to take very seriously. 
Yeah, there is a really excellent series on uh, Apple TV called Hijack uh, with Idris Elba. Mm -hmm. Not my kind of show, but I was sucked in. It was so good. And they had to solve the problem mm. of how a plane got hijacked when the doors are locked. And what they did was they made it to the pilot. One of the pilots was having an affair with a flight attendant. Mm. And they threatened the flight attendant's life. And the pilot broke down and opened the door like an idiot. But an idiot that gave us seven hours of really excellent TV. So You know, they used to... Um, it, it's funny because uh, I mean, part of the reason on that 9-11 happened, that the, the terrorists taking over the plane were, were listened to, were the passengers cooperated with, is because in the history of like aviation up until then, there were actually like a lot of plane hijackings. Usually just meant somebody was taking you to Cuba and no, nobody had the intention of crashing the plane. So the kind of uh, standard operating procedure was to just let the hijackers do what they want, and it's in inconvenience, mm -hmm. but it was not, a, it, it was not a, a threat to anyone on board. I think, actually, I read that the U.S. government considered building, because there were so many um, like leftists, I think, activists, communist activists who wanted to go to Cuba, that the U.S. government considered building a fake an airport that would look like the Cuban Air Force, uh, airport just in southern <laughs> Florida so they, they could pretend to land somewhere else. And then, and then what always would happen to the communists when they'd land in Cuba is that they're arrested by the Cubans and presumed to be U.S. spies and probably tortured. So it was not good for them. But it was, not a, it, it was, a, it was a problem that, just, that people would just cooperate with until, yeah. until we had this thing happen. Yeah, well, I'm sure this was going to really change or affect the conversation that's been ongoing about the kind of therapeutic value of um, There's that aspect of it. mushrooms. It's been gaining a lot of traction as a legitimate way to treat a number of psych psychiatric disorders. It's unclear for what purpose um, yeah. this guy took drugs, recreational or mental health. But it certainly doesn't go uh, into the positive score pile for no. these things. Are, right. <laughs> these things are good for professionals to, to be on. But of course, you know it's a dosage right. issue. When it's I support, I absolutely support legalizing all drugs. I think it should be your choice. What did you put in your body? But just like, but you can't, you, you can't then drive a car. You right. can't then get on an airplane and cause an incident. Um, or maybe this will change some policies about whether pilots should ride in jump seats or whether or not. Yeah. Uh, if you're, I mean, he is off duty, right? It wasn't as though yeah. he took the drug intending to fly. So maybe if the same precaution, you know, you should just have anyone in the cockpit not under influence, even if they're just uh, riding side saddle, as it were. Yeah. Well, we will continue to follow interesting stories like this. <laughs> that does it for us this week on Rising. Tomorrow, Jessica Burbank and Amber Athey will be back to bring you Friday's biggest news. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, you're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We are getting into Halloween party mode. We are. I, I wore a little orange and on theme because I know what a holiday lover you are, Robbie. Check social media for some fun <laughs> pictures in the next few days. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.